You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to Season 2 of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Hey, thanks for coming back and listening to a, uh, another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast. I appreciate you guys allowing me to torture your eardrums on a weekly basis. That's cool. Thank you. Today we got a good guest, great guest, a, uh, a patriot, uh, an airborne ranger combat vet. He has a colorful career filled with unexpected plot turns and uh, including appearances in movies like Zero Dark Thirty. Um, he has since moved into the OPSEC personal security industry where he has built his business. Uh, he has his own security company who uh, advises world leaders, celebrities, Fortune 500s. Sorry, I got choked up there reading that. Damn. And other organizations. Uh, he is no no one other than Spencer Corson. Spencer, thank you for coming on the show, buddy. Clint, my good friend, how are you, sir? Good. How you doing? Doing good, man. Doing good. It's a, so, it's is it true? Time. Is it true that uh, no one gets rich on selling books? It's uh, well, it's been my experience <laughs> that so far that no one gets rich selling books. It's hard, right? So, I bring that up because you just released your first book and uh, the safety trap, and we're certainly going to dig into that as part of this uh, conversation. But thank you. Got a got a pretty little copy of it right here. Yeah, I've got one behind me over here that I'll. Uh, show oh, look at that! Yeah. Oh, I yeah. should have put one in my shot. That you see, this, you're already better at marketing than I am. Just thinking about you—that's what I'm here for. Um, but yeah, I think people assume that oh, you're an author, and if you're a bestseller, then suddenly you, you know the the money just drops in your lap and it isn't, it's like everything else. You got to work your ass off and make it known and stand making a book stand out these days is very difficult. So, uh, how was the process for you in getting there? It's, it was, it was, you learn so much more by the doing than you do by, you know, reading about it or talking to others who have done it. It's just like everything else. And it has just been a, it's, it's been like a world. It's been fun. It's been exhilarating. It's been depressing. It's been anxious. It's been yeah. sometimes just flat out depressing. Like you just, it's kind of like when they're going through Ranger School, you're like, why am I doing this? I just want to quit. And <laughs> yeah. then, and then you get through it. And then you, you finally turn in that first draft and they're like, great. Now do it again. And you're like, oh God. And then right. it's a year of edits and fact checks. And, but I'll tell you, man, there's, Walking into Barnes and Noble and seeing your book on a bookshelf is a pretty cool feeling, right? That's that is that that kind of makes cool up. Feeling could also relate to your bank account emotion. That would be better. <laughs> but uh, that's what I was about to not, say. Not not the case. I mean, it's been it's been a great it's been a great you know commercial for the business. 
Right. But if you think that, you know, you have a best-selling book that you're an instant millionaire, not the case. No, not the case at all. I'll tell people all the time that, hey, it is a book is the new business card, you know, so, and it allows you, especially you get published. And as a published guy, that means you've been vetted um, against a bunch of other authors and you presented something that a publisher in New York thought would be interesting. And then, so that in itself is a success. Most people don't understand uh, how difficult that is. And then, uh, you know, it is a, it is the ultimate marketing platform. Like the, whatever you don't make on the book, you will probably make back over time, uh, in some other form or fashion, not in book sales, but because, Hey, I'm on a shelf. Hey, I, it led to this interview. It led to a, an event. Uh, and then over time, all of a sudden now you're making money and it's not even off the book. (laughs) Right. It's all, it's off all the, the, the ancillary, the, uh, the ancillary, um, yeah. You know, opportunities. But you're you're 100 right. Unless you're like a retired director, CIA, or retired admiral, you know, some you know command fleet. Yeah. You need to have you know president of such and such, but author of this really helps on that Chiron to it's it's instant legitimacy. It's really yeah. what it comes down. That's to. right. Credibility, and credibility, credibility. And credibility. Exactly. Yeah. And um, you know, it's it's reputation and it's relationships and it's everything else. So. It, it's been a, it's been a, I mean, listen, dude, you've been through this process, what, like four or five times now. Mm-hmm. So you know exactly how it goes, but yeah. I'm definitely going to do another one. But I think that this is the money making exploit that uh, some people think it is. It's just simply not. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a battle just like everything, it, you know, it, you know, lottery tickets, most people who win the lottery have been playing for 20 years. So even for them, they didn't get rich overnight. <laughs> right. And so. even when they do win, they didn't make back what they lost. <laughs> yeah, that's, right? that's a lot. That's, why, a lot I mean, that's, why, that's why casinos keep getting built. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, hey, I wanted to kick off with that because, you know, your book just came out. It's pretty recent to the shelves. And uh, congrats, congratulations on getting through the entire process and putting out a, uh, a great book. And we'll we'll dive into what it's about here pretty soon. Thank, thank you. Yeah. And it's been great. You know, with your you were so kind to offer a blurb for the book. And everywhere I go, every interview I do, they're always, man, Clint Emerson. Great guy. Chad, Pr- <laughs> Chad Prathers is such a huge fan of yours. Yeah, he's a good dude. He was on his show and he was like, oh man, that Clint. Yeah, he's like, funny. Don't, he's want funny. It, don't want to meet him in a dark alley. <laughs> yeah. Well, it would be for other reasons than what they're thinking. Um, Friday night so, already? Yeah. <laughs> Let's dive into uh, Army. So you're Army guy. We're going to go dial back in time a little bit. Yeah. And uh, Airborne Ranger School, you know, I, I always like talking about some of the quotes that relate to special operation units. So outside, well, inside BUDS, the old BUDS, you know, they've since demolished that area and are rebuilding. The quote was, the only easy day was yesterday, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, and, I, and I, I believe that through and through, no matter what you do in life. Whatever, whatever you did today, it's not going to get any easier tomorrow necessarily, especially if your work ethic is squared away, if you're working your ass off, then every day should be harder than the previous one. Um, and then they changed it. Now, when you go to the new compound, um, there in San Diego, they built this whole new campus for all the SEAL teams. And at the gate, now it says always choose to carry more is, uh, the, I think the new quote above, uh, the entryway and, um, that one, I yeah, okay, I get it, but it's uh, always choose to cut like always choose more than, to carry more than your load. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
I'm sure there was a, you know, a whole lot of thought put into that whole process of putting that up, but um, it is the current latest and greatest uh, seal quote that's hanging somewhere down there. Um, and then, you know, you've got ranger school, which outside ranger school, you've got not for the weak or the faint hearted, right? Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, the black and gold banner yeah. as you enter into uh, Camp Darby yeah. says not for the weak or faint hearted. Yeah, so your time in. Yeah, I think all of them are true. No doubt about it. I think all of them play a role in the military and outside the military. I think there's a lot to be learned there. But um, now for you and your experience uh, as, you know, uh, airborne ranger. Now, there's also another saying and we can that you can now expand on and I can stop talking is uh, the tab is a school and the scroll is a way of life. So where did you fall in all that? I fell on the tab side. I was uh, supposed to go to 1st Ranger Battalion, and then, um, so we had cadre at, at, so our pre-Ranger is kind of like your buds. That's the weed out. Mm -hmm. And then you go through um, uh, this like Ranger assessment process, which gets you into, into actual Ranger school. So your first day of Ranger school, it's a PT test, but then you've pretty much already proven that you deserve to be there. But they have cadre from all of the different battalions there, and they're kind of like picking who they want for, for their for their for their places. And um, me and this one um, uh, cadre from first battalion like really hit it off, and we were we were gonna go work together. And he wanted me on his team, and we were going through, and everything was going great. And one of the issues that one of the challenges I will say that I constantly faced in my military career was that I enlisted with a college degree. Hmm. And my thought was I was going to go enlisted, get all the cool schools, do all the training and then go officer candidate. Yeah. But they wanted me to go officer right away. So I kind of was bucking the system a bit and I wound up going 10 for 10 on the land nav portion of ranger school, which very few people had ever done, but it's not rocket science. If you can, terrain associate and you know where you're going and you know your pace count, you can knock it out pretty easy. Mm -hmm. And no one, I guess, had done that before. So they accused me of cheating. And then they asked <laughs> me to do it again. I did it again. And then they, um, they said, well, all right, well, I have to take a history test. And so I took the history test, which they then said I failed, but wouldn't show me the results. So yeah, um, a little, a little uh, yeah, the, the army likes to play games. That's, so that's, then, yeah. so then I got taken in and I kind of had a back and forth with one of the, uh, with one of the, um, with one of the lead cadre people. And I basically said, and he basically said, well, if you're not going to follow the rules, you're not the kind of guy we want in our battalion. I said, well, if you're the kind of leader that the battalion has, I certainly don't want to operate under you. And I had pretty much sealed my fate at that point. And uh, <laughs> you were young, so, you're uh, much younger. I, I, I was young. And anyway, so I got tabbed and got sent to uh, the 82nd. And mm -hmm. so, but it was great. Loved the 82nd. And then literally September 11th happened like shortly thereafter. And we were, we were off and running. Yeah. So then I uh, did a year in Afghanistan and then got out. And as our team was ramping up to go to Iraq, I wound up getting recruited um, to go work for the government. And so wound up doing some diplomatic security work for the next few years. Spent god what did i spend like probably like the next six years um doing diplomatic security work and i was assigned over at the imf so we were since this was like one of those like weird things so when 
they were doing the threat matrices. And this is back when like Al Qaeda was like the big global threat. Mm -hmm. They had identified military institutions, government buildings, and financial institutions as like the three targets that they wanted to go after. And the IMF and the World Bank were right across the street from each other in downtown DC. The World Bank was run by an American. The IMF was run by um, a, uh, it had to, if the World Bank was run by an American, the IMF had to be run by someone foreign because it was under like the UN charter. And so the Secret Service couldn't do it and State Department couldn't do it. So they had us under this like special deputy US Marshal 1801 clause so that we had all of the rights and responsibilities of federal agents, but only while we were on that particular protective operation. But when we went overseas, we had to just kind of wing it, which was always interesting. Mm. And so wound up doing that for, did like 300 protective missions to 163 different countries in about six years. And then when the Obama administration came in and things started changing up a bit, I wound up getting recruited by uh, Gavin DeBecker and Associates. Went out there for a couple of years, did their, um, ran their, I was the deputy director of their protective security program. Wound up getting pulled from that to go overseas and do a security site audit for this movie, Zero Dark Thirty, that was being filmed because the production company was going to be operating. They were going to pretend that Chandigarh, India was Islamabad. Mm. And so, but at the time, Chandigarh was right on the Syrian border. And this was 2012 when Syria had just like run out of coffins. So I was using my embassy contacts to make sure, hey, if that you know spilled over, could we get our people out? What was it like? And then they wound up bringing me on as a military consultant and then a security consultant for the for the plan. And as you know, they had a uh, the SEAL team on that raid had a had a canine mm -hmm. uh, Cairo, I think his name was. Yeah. So they had an actor and a dog training in Los Angeles to come over to be part of that movie. But as they flew over, the dog didn't have the right amount of shots or something. And so they got turned around at Jordanian customs. So I'm standing there in the chow line one day and Catherine Bigelow, the director and Mark Bull, the screenwriter come up to me and they're like, Spencer, you were in the army, right? I'm like, yes. And they're like, how are you with dogs? I was like, great. And they're like, you're our canine seal. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so they wound up like having to backfill a couple different scenes. So if you watch that movie and you blink, you'll miss me. But anytime you see the dog jumping on or off the helicopter, the handler at the other end of the leash is me. Wow. Look at you. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I actually have a movie poster right over here in my office. But what you don't <laughs> see is that I have the dev group patch on one side, but I have the Ranger tab on the other. Just so if any of my buddies uh, were like, hey, you sold out. I was like, uh, but I always made sure it was away from the camera so no one could see. <laughs> That's awesome. So then I went, I went back to back to LA and was uh, doing more of the security, you know, side of this of the celebrities, you know, celebrities, athletes, models, what have you. And then uh, uh, Sandy Hook happened, and that was a you know both my parents were teachers, and I realized that you know not everyone will know the luxury of having their own protective detail but everyone deserves to be protected and i was like listen if i'm ever going to go into business for myself this is the time to do it so that just made for the nice you know transition point for me to go from doer to uh owner yeah and, uh, no and it's uh, you know, in it's the a, book the book the book is a continuation of that yeah no that's a great um snapshot of your background and uh i mean lends to all your experience and and credibility with the book so you know, going back through, through, you know, your time in the army to doing PSD work, 
all that combined, was there ever one event that kind of stands out where you got a lot of lessons learned out of it that, you know, the listeners would appreciate, you know, a, a moment of crisis, uh, an emergency, uh, or even just something crazy? Um, yeah. So there was one time I definitely thought I was going to die. And that was in Jordan when uh, we went head to head with a Mack truck and our the driver of the truck got like tossed through the windshield and we we were like on this ravine and as the truck was coming at us it was like on this s curve so to the right of us was the mountain and to the left of us was just a drop off mm. and we hit the literally there was no way for us to avoid hitting each other slammed in we went left the truck went right so we hit the we hit the guardrail and i'm thinking to myself so as soon as, and so funny, they always tell you this. And so in jump school, you have to do this thing where it's like jumpers hit it. You have to do this like parachute landfall position. Yeah. And they're like, anytime you're in any kind of danger, you're going to remember this for the rest of your life. And PLF. I shit you not. As, yeah. And as soon <laughs> yeah. as that parachute landfall, exactly. So as soon as that hit, my, I immediately took up this position. Yeah. And we went through the guardrail. And I was like, all right, the next thing is going to be us hitting the ground. I felt the impact of the guardrail was waiting for the impact of us hitting the ground. And it never came. I was like, fuck, I'm dead. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, no, I'm not. Like, I can still feel everything. And like the car was like literally like teetering, teetering over the side. And I had to like climb out the back. The driver was, was thrown out. So here we are standing in the middle of this Jordanian highway, somewhere between the Dead Sea and Amman. I've got a dead Jordanian truck driver on the ground. I've got a nearly mortally wounded driver also jordanian bleeding out on the ground and i'm a white guy in the middle of this desert road <laughs> so here comes a military convoy and all they see is me looking the way i do and i've got you know 511 pants on i look like a contractor i'm like this is not good and the one thing that the driver says to me is like spencer don't trust them and i'm like okay great hmm. so he basically communicates to them. I am going through all the gear in my bag, just giving things away to establish like relationships with these guys so that they know I'm one of the good ones. I'm showing them pictures on my phone that shows like I'm a, I'm a great guy. And fortunately the film crew was able to get someone there, but I literally, they, the, the military transport people wound up taking the driver away. So now it's just me and a Jordanian trucker on the road. And I'm like, well, this isn't going to go well. And uh, anyway, yeah, I end up getting that cleaned up, but I just remember like this is not how I'm dying on the on the side of a Jordanian highway. <laughs> yeah, and then one other time where like I wasn't directly impacted, but it, it could have gone really really bad was 2008. We're in Mauritania. I don't know if you ever did any work in Africa, but oh, depending yeah. on where you are in Africa, it, it can be a real anyway. Mauritania is, I think, it's still like the poorest country in the world. And it was one of those things where when we were operating overseas, my cover was oftentimes that of like a logistics and protocol advance. So we were there setting it up, I get off the plane and that like white van with the drapes pulls up and you're like, okay, I'm either going to get dead or detained. I don't know which one. <laughs> yeah. Like we're, we're going to take you to this special guest hangar. And you yeah. see all the people that just got off the plane, like walking one way and they're driving you to another. And like, this isn't going to go good. 
And so I'm like, it's like some like 18 year old driver, uh, like a 20 year old, uh, you know, um, like protection guy. He's got like an old, like breaded 92 FS on his hip. I'm like, all right, I can take that. I can, do I take out the driver? I'm trying to figure out in my head, like where the embassy is in relationship to the, you know, to the airport. So that if I did have to make a run for it, I knew where to go. (laughs) And fortunately I get a, a, we were all using those like Blackberries at the time. So I get a BBM from my contact at the embassy that says like, Hey, I'm here waiting for you at the hangar. You know, I see you pulling up. I'm like, okay, good. So we were supposed to stay at this like government building, but there was this like transition going on. So they wound up taking us to the new presidential palace, which was still being built. And it was one of those things where you walk in and they have all the president's photos lined up, but all of them are like 18 months in duration because they keep getting assassinated. (laughs) Yeah. And you're like, okay, this isn't, this isn't really great for instilling confidence. And they're still like painting the house. They're still like screwing in the light bulbs. And then I see these like two, two or three like military convoys coming in. All these guys with like AK-47. And they're like, this is my protection detail. Hmm. That's going to help me with the with the uh, the delegation that's coming in. Plane lands the next day. I've got three. I've got a, a pack of three. I've got the head of the organization, his number one, and a deputy. None of them are American. The only other two Americans are the pilots. But the airport, the private airfield was attached to the presidential palace. So we've got this whole, like three trucks of protection people were there for three days. First day, everything goes fine. Second day, I start to see the protection details like half of what it was. By the end of that night, we're at the dinner with the, with the, uh, the, the president of Mauritania, who it just came out on like the BBC that China was pulling the funding for all the projects they were doing. Cause I don't know if you're familiar with like the Chinese model where they would bring in everything to. So basically the Chinese would go into African countries and say, Hey, we're going to pave your roads. We're going to give your, you know, we're going to give you, you know, lighting. We're going to help with your infrastructure. We're going to do all this stuff, but we want 20% of mining rights. Mm-hmm. And so the government would be like, okay, great. We're going to have all this labor, but the Chinese would just bring in their prisoners to do all the work. <laughs> and they would bring in all and they would bring in all the materials to, to build everything. So the country would actually not make anything, but would also have to give 20% away. And China was basically pissed that they weren't getting their, their fair share and were pulling out. So now this protest starts coming up to the president's palace. I'm already down half my delegation. So I basically have to take a staff car with my pack back out the back door and get us back to the house. By the third day, it's 15 guys down from like 150 and I'm like, what's going on? We uh, have a couple meetings scheduled for that day. And I get a, a ping from my guy at the embassy. Who's like, Hey, when are you scheduled to leave? And I'm like, later this afternoon, he's like, no, leave now. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, how much time do I have? And he just took, he just texted me back RFN like right fucking now. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, shit. So I get the pilots to the plane, have them start ramping things up get the the number two to let the boss know that we've got to go. I just start filling a bathtub up with water to just destroy all the documents. I'm taking a nail and a hammer and just driving it through hard drives, throwing everything into the tub, realize that there's an SUV in the garage that can get us to the plane. Fortunately, the keys were still in there and the driver was asleep. He would wake up in a storage closet a couple hours later get everyone on the plane or sorry, get everyone onto the SUV. We get to the plane, load it. And as we're ramping up, you see the military convoy coming through the gate. 
and wow. the same and the same general that was like telling me how great his protection team <laughs> yeah. was was the one that was leading the coup and i was yeah. like hey man drinks on time you next go. time yeah. next time we're there i was like Whew. because the only americans on that trip were the two pilots and me yeah. And I certainly did not want us to be uh, bargaining chips in some new president's ascension to legitimacy. No, you know, those are both stories bring up, have a common denominator, and that is currency, right? Currency right. isn't just cash. Like, you know, you get in a car accident, especially overseas, um, pretty much everywhere around the globe, except here in the United States, but even maybe some metropolitan areas, I'm sure it works. And that is, you know, you know, bribery is a second form of income for most people. So you always have cash on you. Um, and they wouldn't call it bribery. They just, they just call it income. It's just another form of income because they don't law enforcement, whoever it is, but mm -hmm. it can be cash. It can be the, the gear in your bag, you know, as tokens of good faith and show that you're a good person. Um, but then currency can also go the other way where in your second story, you potentially would have become the currency right. for them. Uh, because having three Americans certainly has huge money attached to it um, if they play their cards right, which is... Yeah, uh, it, it has cash, but yeah. a different kind of... Uh, the oh, different yeah. Cash, uh, the yeah. Real, real hardcore currency. <laughs> um, uh, no, but you're right, man. Because every time... It, well, and also it's just about like utilizing your relationships too, right? Whether that be talking about like your home security situation and just like when I talk about like recruiting local assets, I'm talking about like your neighbors or who yeah. has what, or like when we just had that like really bad freeze here in Austin a couple months ago, Hey, I've got gas heat. So I have hot water and a, and a functional stove. You've got a, a, a deep freezer. Like let's, you know, I've got solar chargers and everyone just kind of like worked in that collective effort together. Yeah, because listen, man, like I, I was never like the best soldier. I was never the strongest or the smartest, but I was always really good at networking. Mm. And you know, I'm sure you know this from your own global experience. Outside of your skill set, your reputation, and your relationships can save your life. Yeah, because no if about someone, it. if someone knows who you are, or if you can get someone on the phone, or if you have those pre-established con, like that guy at the embassy who I was friends with, we had known each other from Fletzy years before. And so we were able to sort of, you know, and maybe it's just that maybe you didn't arrive with a weapon, but a weapon can find you when you're in some of these non-permissive mm -hmm. environments. Look, there's a lot of things that can happen, but it's all based on your reputation and your relationships. More with former Airborne Ranger gone security consultant Spencer Corson after the break. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Um, I, I used to tell people all the time, especially corporate type travelers that every business card you collect is more valuable than calling the embassy because <laughs> they're not coming to help yeah. you. They're not going to do shit for you. Um, mm -hmm. But the person you met when you were buying that Persian carpet probably can pull more strings than, you know, right. than the embassy can if you find yourself in trouble. Yeah. Or even when I was doing, you know, celebrity protection work, the, the valet guys, the bus boys, the the guys who parked cars or cleaned houses or cleaned the rooms, they were much more valuable at providing real-time actionable intel than the director of security of the hotel. Yeah. Because they knew they were the ones that had the relationships with the paparazzi or with the stalkers or with the, the inappropriate pursuers or with the, hey, you know, there's such and such a person that's just around that corner waiting for you to come around. They've got, you know, a book and some stuff they want you to sign. Yeah. And the more you can just bring everyone onto the team instead of coming in as a, hey, I'm this, you know, hotshot 
protection guy, the more you can utilize those assets and, and, and marshal those resources, the better your, your chances are at being effective and being successful and ultimately. Yeah. No, it's all great, great info. Um, I think everybody will benefit just from these little tidbits in their everyday life without a doubt. And, uh, I think it's interesting that it, yeah, all your service providers that you referenced, they're the eyes and ears is what it boils down to. They're there 100%. and they see their environment every day. So they, they can pick out the anomalies, the weird things, the strange things like mm -hmm. that. And, uh, whereas us, you know, that's our first time in the environment. So of course we're not going to see everything that we should be seeing. And right. Um, or we don't know what to see. Right. Because it's like one of the things my global ex experience, and I'm sure yours is exactly the same has proven time and time again, is that when you don't expect to see danger, you simply fail to see the warning signs that something bad is about to happen. Yeah. But the warning signs are always there and staying safe is about training yourself to see them. And if you are not in a position, if you are not inoculated into that environment, the mm -hmm. best assets for you are the people who are like, yeah. what, what's one of the first things you learn in like any kind of like wooded or jungle warfare? Like if the birds aren't chirping, someone else is there. Right. Yeah. Just pay right. attention to the environment, but got to right. know what to pay attention to. Right. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I think we, we complement each other on all this type of stuff. Cause I'm constantly telling people like, Hey, it's the word situational awareness is overused, underutilized. And, uh, it really boils down to you there. It's impossible to pay attention to everything. And if you're paying attention to everything, then you're not really paying attention to anything because you just can't do it. So you have to right. know what to look for in order to see it. And it complements exactly what you just said. Um, yeah. Now diving in to a little bit of, uh, you know, with, with dealing with celebrities because PSD work for the government, you can kind of stay in the lane of PSD for the most part. And you don't mm -hmm. end up crossing into coffee or, you know, right. uh, becoming like a bougie boy for whoever, right? The government work, you can at least, you know, you don't have to do the coffee thing. Now you cross over into celebrity world. Uh, did you find yourself kind of having to go, oh crap, now I got to do all these other little ancillary things for these people, uh, in order yeah. to kind of keep so, business moving. Right. So it's, there's, there's two sides to that story, right? The, the government protection model can ebb and flow as the threat level increases, the, the amount of resources they can throw at that concern can increase. And then as that threat matrix may go down, they can, they can scale back and they have an unlimited amount of resources and finances to support that mission. Yeah. Celebrities, the number one most influential decision-making factor is cost. And so, yeah, you may want to say, I need a, a man, a, you know, a body person and in advance, but if they're only willing, or if the studio is only willing, or if what have you is only willing to pay for so much, you have to kind of do more with less. Yeah. And so that's really where those relationships and those, that recruitment of local assets, like really comes in into place because if the, the, it's great if you're working in the same city for a long time, because then you know where you're going, you know, the, where the layouts are, you know, the safe place to, to pick up and drop off. You may know the, the valet person's name and you can, you know, I was always like really good at just always having like $25, like uh, Starbucks gift cards that I would just like tip to people or 
you know, Amazon cards or whatever, just as like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because if you take the time to remember someone, they're going to take the time to remember you. Mm -hmm. And so, but yeah, you're right. Like there are times when uh, there's countless photos of me on TMZ carrying some celebrity's bag, you know, through an airport. (laughs) But here's the thing, like you also have to keep in mind, okay, I know there's no guns in this airport because we're on the other side of but that doesn't mean that like throngs of people still aren't going to come. But now, okay, now how do I use this bag as as maybe a blocking feature? There's a, a million different ways you have to play it. Right. But it's that hot coffee. Like, hot coffee burns the face. Yes. Hot coffee burns the face. But like, listen, man, you <laughs> really are half concierge, half hitman. Like, you mm-hmm. really have to know how to how to when to when to be the the heavy, and when a, a courteous, polite smile will you know be more effective than abrasion. Yeah, which is usually the case, right? I mean, being just being nice goes a lot further than. But also, like, yeah, you have to run out and get coffee sometimes. Absolutely, because what is easier, keeping the the protectee safe and sound in their hotel room, or walking them through the lobby out to the street, having them stand in a Starbucks line, then turning around, going back upstairs? So, no, no. To your point, I mean, and and the other thing is that there's always this. There's this false expectation that because they have security, that all security is the same. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. I want the, I want, so, and they, they think what they want isn't always what they need and what they need isn't always what they want. Yeah. And so you have on, on the celebrity side, you have the people who need it and need it and want it. You have the people who want it, but don't need it. You have the people who need it, but don't want it. And then you have the people that don't want it and don't need it. Mm-hmm. And Sometimes you're there just to make them look more important walking down the red carpet. And other times you're there because there's a legitimate threat in place. Yeah. The problem is, is that they, they just don't like so many, so, especially like, like on the music side, maybe they were like playing at a certain venue for a long time and that's where they got famous. And so now they're going to take the door guy on tour with them. But the door guy on tour is a bouncer that knows how to take tickets and show you where the bathroom is like knows nothing about conducting a proper advance or how to initiate protocol or just even of the mindset that if you have time to draw aim and fire, you also have time to cover and evacuate. And your priority in protection is to disengage and to put as much time and distance between you and the threat as possible, not to engage and prolong that engagement longer than it needs to be. Yeah. So it's mm, yeah. It's a mixed. It's a mixed bag, man. And also, like on the on the, but also like on the government side, like you know that everyone is trained to a very specific standard. Now there'll be many shades of gray along that standard, but you would know that at least everyone knows how to shoot, move, communicate. Right. When you get onto the private side of the house, like they may have just been self-taught, may have been on the job training. You don't know what their background is, what their skill set is, what their operational intelligence is, what their emotional intelligence is. And so it, it's, yeah, you can get, you can get stuck with an idiot real, real quick. Right. And, and have, <laughs> and have, <laughs> oh boy. Um, okay. So let's, uh, your, the, your most recent accomplishment we've hit on it already is the safety trap right here. Yes. Hold it up. Put it, yeah. It's nice and in focus. We'll put it up here and over here. Oh, you so, got three cameras going. Yeah. You got, uh, you got, I like it. It's a, I tell people all the time, you know, that top quote's really good. <laughs> it is a great safety security reference and uh, should be right on their shelf next to hundred deli skills. But um, one of the things I like about what you did is you kind of do this uh, contradictory way of making a point. And I, I love it. Like number one, let's focus on number one. 
or the first, sure. the big one here. Um, why is it that sometimes feeling safe is the most dangerous thing we can do? We are emotional beings. Mm -hmm. And so safety is an emotion. Security is a state of being. And in order for the, both of those things to be, uh, in order for us to be protected, we need to both feel safe, but also be secure. So when we feel safe, our vigilance has a tendency to go down. And then when our vigilance goes down, our risk goes up. And when we feel safe, but risk is still in place, we tend to make decisions that are more in line with being a victim than of being a survivor. Because listen, best way to explain this is if you're holding an umbrella and the, the umbrella is up and the canopy is hold, that canopy that is keeping the rain from falling down on you is security. Yeah. How you feel underneath that umbrella is safety. You feel warm and dry. Therefore, you feel safe because the security is working as you expected it to. Mm -hmm. But if you were then um, you felt safe because you knew there was a hurricane, but you're like, no, I feel safe because I've got an umbrella and you go out onto the street and you expect that umbrella to work in a hurricane as effectively as it did in you know that light drizzle, you're going to be wildly, you know, it's completely uh, different. Completely yeah. different because the expectation was wasn't properly framed, and now you don't feel safe, and now you feel anxious, and you're like, "Well, is everything not safe?" And blah 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 blah. Got but it. Then what happens is that the safety trap is when we feel safe, something bad happens. We're like, "Oh my god, how did this happen?" But then that bad thing goes back to normal, and the cycle repeats itself. Yeah, and we see this yeah. with like school shootings or what we what what, what have you. But, you know, we see this with people, like, a buddy of mine has a daughter and every time he goes, she goes out, he's like, you know, stay safe. And she's like, don't worry, I have my mace. But like that mace <laughs> is not going to save you. Right. Or people are like, oh, I don't have to worry about that. Like, you know, I carry a gun. And I'm like, uh -huh. well, are you putting a thousand rounds down range a month? No. Yeah. Then that gun's going to get used against you. Yeah. Because, you know, and I've said this before, but it's true. The number one argument against the everyday citizen using a handgun to save themselves in a life or death scenario is to watch that same everyday citizen try to use a cell phone to take a selfie of a celebrity. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I can take my phone and take a picture of my breakfast with like perfect clarity and have it uploaded to the cloud and filter it and post it to Instagram and it looks beautiful. But if like Taylor Swift walks in the room, it's like, uh, how do I, uh, uh, how do I? Yeah. Now imagine that's a handgun, right? Right, because people joke, people don't realize that when you're on the range and you're under ideal circumstances, and the targets down there, and they're like, okay, on the count of th when on the when the buzzer is, you're going to draw a fire, you're going to fire two rounds in five seconds, reholster, blah blah blah, like you're under, you're not under duress, mm -hmm. but when you're under duress, your fine motor function goes down, your heart rate ac accelerates. Your vision tightens, it gets blurry, you get tunnel vision, you start sweating, your fine motor function deteriorates. And to think that you are going to perform as well as you think you will in that circumstance is a false expectation. I actually have a whole chapter in the book on the safety trap of expectation. Yeah, no, those are great, valid points. And like I said, I, you know, another statement that's kind of contradictory to make a point that I like is, uh, and I'll just roll it into a question is why can being too polite be dangerous? Because you're not being disagreeable. One of the biggest, especially with um, 
people who are looking to abduct children or who are looking to put women into compromising situations or who are just our unwillingness to offend another should never be greater than our willingness to defend ourselves. Yeah. I had a, uh, a friend of mine reach out to me um, a couple of weeks ago because, she, and she's a strong professional, you know, um, educated, successful woman. She has a strong protective posture. She takes good care of herself. She's you know familiar with weapons. She's uh, security adjacent. So it's not like she doesn't understand like risk or what have you. And she's in New York city and it's 11 AM on a, on a Sunday. And she comes out of her hotel room. She slings her purse across her shoulder. She goes down to the lobby and she wants to go have a cup of coffee. The lobby restaurant is closed, uh, but they're offering some breakfast out on the patio. So she goes out on the patio, gives herself some self-served coffee, takes a table at the corner, takes her bag off her shoulder, puts her bag on the table, pulls out a cigarette, starts smoking and enjoying her coffee. A couple of minutes later, this guy walks into the room who she then says is dodgy mm-hmm. and, uh, and starts like finicking with different things. Maybe he's looking for a phone. Does he have his room key? What have you? But he's like looking around and he's like, look, maybe he's waiting for someone. And she's like, there's just something not right about this guy. And she looks around, there's like a, another table with like two guys on one side. There's another couple here. There's another woman sitting by herself. And then there's her. And she's like, there's just not something right. And then, but then she starts thinking to herself, well, you know, hotel prices have really gone down and there's a lot of dodgy people here. And, you know, maybe he's just doing this. And so she like takes her eyes off him and looks down and goes back to doing what she was doing. And then next thing she knows, this same guy has his elbow in her chest, is grabbing her purse and is running out the door. Mm. And she's like, well, why did he target me? And basically, guy said, well, he targeted you because one, you took your eyes off him. Everyone else was probably looking up or looking at him or looking past him or did something to identify themselves as not, that likelihood of success not being so great. Also, you're in a nice hotel, you're nicely dressed, that's a nice purse, and you're smoking. Smoking equals disposable income, disposable income equals nicer things. So he can either go after like the poor, he's not going to go after the two guys. He's not going to go after the couple. He looked, he was going to probably target one of the two women. And you were offering the higher likelihood of success because one, you weren't looking at him two you were distracted and three, you probably hadn't things that would be worth him stealing. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean that as soon as she saw that guy that she had to get up and leave? No, but did she immediately negotiate against her own survival instincts? Yes. Because yeah. she chose in that moment to play his defense lawyer rather than the judge of her own situation. So what could she have done? She could have just simply, you know, kept her head up, maybe not looked at him, but looked just past him so that he's still in her periphery or in her in, per, in her periphery. She could have taken her bag off the table and put it next to her. She could have reslung it around her shoulder. She could have just moved a chair around to the front so that it was another another piece of physical you know, barrier between her and him. She could have pulled out her cell phone and let her know that someone else was coming, which may have helped to thwart his escape. But the fact that she chose to do nothing, that she in no way, shape or form did anything to participate in her own protection was a direct reflection of her being too polite Mm. because she, instead of choosing to participate in her own protection, she weighed that as being less valuable than her unwillingness to be offensive to another. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of see it too as, um, you know, the, that's a great scenario. And, 
and uh, had a lot of points in there. Um, I see where people are too polite is, you know, something as simple as standing at the elevator, right? If, mm-hmm. if there's someone in the elevator, uh, you don't necessarily have to get in just because the door is open. You can just stand there. And if that person looks questionable, that's already in the elevator, but we tend to just, okay, I guess I'll just get in because I don't want to, you know, offend this person or stand here and look like an idiot or whatever the other feeling is. You know, we tend to just go, okay, doors open. Yeah, he looks shady, but I'm going to go ahead and get in here. I'm only going up one floor, you know? <laughs> and you so. know what, you, but you know what it is, Clint? Like, I, I, one of the things I championed in this book is that awareness plus preparation equals safety. Yeah. So you don't want the first time coming up with an excuse to not get into an elevator to be when there's someone you don't want to get into an elevator. Yeah. Just every once in a while, make it a habit to not get in the elevator and to come up with some kind of an excuse because yeah. that way you'll be, it becomes so, you know, you're so used to participating in your own protection. Like, oh, you know what? Forgot my keys. Sorry. Or, hey, oh, sorry. Next one. I'm waiting for a friend. There's a million excuses you can use. Yeah. But if in that moment when you're immediately confronted with someone where you're, you know, your, your Spence defense starts going off, you can, what you don't want is to have that, you know, that that first time using the fire extinguisher be a literal trial by fire. You want to have participated in that scenario before so that you're much more comfortable with it when it comes on. Uh, I posted that thing on Instagram uh, like a week ago about like, what's the safest place to stand in an elevator? Mm-hmm. And I say it's like right by the control panel. Yeah. Because as the doors open, if you see someone comes on who's even the little, littlest bit dodgy, you can just sneak right off. And also you're in control of the panel so that if you're on that floor, you can hit the very next floor, get off on that floor or hit all the floors so that the doors are constantly opening and opening and closing. Yeah. But just mentally having that mental projection, it's kind of like what they talk about, like in sports psychology, like the athlete steps up to the plate. Okay. He's going to pitch and then I'm going to swing and then boom, and the ball is going to go this way. The more you mentally project the actions that you want your body to perform, the more effective your body will be in carrying out that scenario because it's already rehearsed what it's going to do in your mind. Yes. And that mind-body connection just becomes that much more interconnected, makes you that much more effective, makes your response time that much greater, increases your survivability by that much more. Yeah. No, all good stuff. Um, I, I say it all the time. You got to calibrate, sensitize your mind to different environments, different scenarios. And that means you got to take a moment and just think about these things. And it'll go a long ways, you know, uh, when a good day goes bad. Um, For everybody out there, you know, Safety Trap is sold everywhere where books are sold. Obviously, Amazon is the number one place to get it because it can show up sometimes in the same day. So make sure you guys are checking out Safety Trap. Um, And now we're going to roll into your hypothetical survival scenario. Okay. You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. More with Spencer Corson after the break. Has anyone died on this podcast yet? I think so. Yeah, a couple people. Okay, good. So yeah. I still want to be the first one. <laughs> all right. So, you know, sometimes going through these scenarios, it, it's the first for me too, all right? Because the producers mm-hmm. tend to build these, um, kind of customize them to the person. Uh, so this will be fun. Let's see where we go here. All right. So quick question before we start. Have you sure. ever seen the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, 
The Revenant. Is that the one with the bear? That's the one with the bear. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you nailed it, but uh, we will get that. Yeah, we'll get to that okay. here in a minute. So for this scenario, uh, you've at been... any point will I need to use my lightsaber to <laughs> to hibernate inside of a bear? We might. Uh, we might. You okay. might. It's only Got when it. the zombies come out, though. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, so for this scenario, you've been flown out to do a threat assessment for a large company in a scenic town with lots of beautiful wooded mountainous areas okay you are in town a day early and you decide to take a leisurely hike in the woods just to kind of check things out first question do you a go into the woods with no phone on you so you can really feel like you are unplugged out in nature or b carry your cell phone plus some other helpful items so that you're prepared along your hike Starts yeah, out I'm, easy. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna take my phone <laughs> and other essential items with me. All right. Okay. So you know probably there's... the go bag I got from uh, official violent no mode. There you go. <laughs> I appreciate that plug. Um, so yes, B, you are correct. You um, yes. Bring the phone with you is a good idea. Uh, should an emergency arise, you want to be able to contact people for help. Um, you also grab a pack of matches a map of the area that you're going to from the lobby in the hotel. Um, so now that you are out in the wilderness, enjoying a stroll through the woods, when about 50 feet away, you spot a black bear, not a brown bear or a grizzly. Do you A, climb a tree and wait for the bear to move on, or B, change your route, moving away from the bear, but keeping your eye on her as you move calmly away? Yeah, move away from the bear as you move calmly away. That is right. So, do do we do can we do we have one second for a Spencer Corson sidebar? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Did you did you read that section in the book where I was home at my parents' house and thought I heard a prowler coming in, and then I go out the back door. I've got a Sig two two nine. Yeah, my parents have like fifteen acres of God's country up in up in the Poconos. So there's this. I'm pretty sure there's a bad guy come at the door and I hear like these like steps crunching. And I hear the front door rattling. I'm like, oh, this. So I pie around the side, come out. And as I pie around the corner, there's a black bear that's, that's batting down on the bird feeder. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> this ain't going to do shit for me. So I just yeah, like yeah. slowly did a tactical retreat <laughs> and went back inside. Never yeah. mind. Never mind. Yeah. Nine so yeah, just piss him uh, off. Apologize to the producers for that section. They'll probably have to put out. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, it's all good. Yeah. It's all good. Um, keep your eye on, keep your eye on the bear and slowly back away. That's right. Good idea. Um, because you're about 50 feet away, you know, uh, and the bear hasn't noticed you, but you notice them, you're kind of in a good position. Yeah. Um, and so you take that opportunity to change your route um, and quietly, uh, you know, get out of the view, get out of the bear's interest. Um, climbing a tree, obviously bears climb trees better than monkeys. Uh, they can they can go right up a tree I mean, like a cat. It's it's incredible. It, they're wicked fast. Yeah, it is. It's crazy scary. And you know the sense of smell that they've got. Um, whether you're up, down, left or right, they're going to smell you. They're going to know exactly where you're at, even if they didn't see you go up the tree. So, anyway, um, you got to know uh, know your threats capabilities before you start tr- thinking that you're going to outthink them. Um, so you change the route. Now you kind of you've kind of increased your distance, right? Increased distance increases survivability. You're about 60, 70 feet away. 
uh, when the bear notices you. Okay. So now do you a get loud and get big or B stay quiet and see what the bear does next. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> they do get more difficult as we move through your scenario. And the bear's moving towards me or the bear just sees me? Sees you. I'm going to stay still. Okay. Stay still? Yeah. Um, Like I tell all our guests, you know, sometimes there's two right answers, but the right answer is mine. <laughs> <laughs> or should I say is the producer's. Um, all right. So... We're gonna go with A. All right, get okay. loud, get big. Uh, as I'm, soon gonna, as I'm gonna, see you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge you on this, but let's go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Of course, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of bear stuff out there, um, but luckily, so we're gonna just go with A, so that it rolls with the scenario. Um, reason being is, luckily, you know, when you talk about black bears versus brown, uh, brown bears are much more aggressive. Um, so you've lucked out by getting the black bear because getting loud and getting big works effectively on them. Um, waving your arms, steady stream of, hey, bear, hey, bear, hey, bear, you know, get out of here, yelling at them, letting them know that you kind of own your piece of land, and hopefully they shoo, shoo, shoo away. Uh, this would not be recommended if it was a brown bear or a grizzly, because uh, they may actually challenge you, unlike a black bear. For the most part, they tend to go, eh, okay, I'm just going to be a big rodent and get the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. um, for, the, for, the ris for the listeners... Um, being loud and moving through the woods can often uh, keep the bears away from you from the get-go, right? If you're just talking to yourself, talking out loud, making lots of noise, most of your wildlife goes, fuck it, I don't want to know what that is. And they just kind of move on without ever seeing you and you never seeing them. Um, but I'd, I'll stop there and, yeah, give the other uh, variation with black bears. So black bears are often as long as they're not like emaciated or injured are much more afraid of us than we are of them. Yeah. Two is they're, if we're 70 feet away, their eyesight isn't that great, but their sense of smell and their sense of hearing is pretty good. So chances are they heard me rather than see me. And so I don't want to, I don't want to target identify myself unless I absolutely have to. Likelihood is that bear is going to look over to see if I'm a threat and then it's going to look down. And as soon as it looks away, I'm going to start, start retreating some more. But to your point, if that bear noticed me and started coming towards me, then I would go option A and make yeah. myself as big and as prominent and as fearsome as I could. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. Um, yeah, they, they, they're like dogs. They can smell three-dimensionally, and with mm -hmm. that good hearing, they know exactly where you are. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah, you can be behind a tree, and they're still going to know but you're there's behind a, the yeah, tree. But there's a big difference <laughs> between a bear, like, you know, feeding just going, yeah, yeah. Hmm? Right. And and like making an, an overt turn towards you. Without a doubt. And I would say, too, the situation, if you've got your family with you versus you're by yourself or with a mama bear with her cubs or by herself also play a big role in the decision-making yeah, process. Huge, huge, huge. Um, All right, so I'll take the L on that one. Yeah, all right. Your show. It's okay. Um, unfortunately, getting loud does not work. See? So some of this stuff complements the points you're making. And now the bear is casually coming your way so now you've kind of identified yourself getting loud and now she's just casually coming your way maybe it's more of a curiosity so do you a turn and run or b stand still 
Oh, I see what they're doing here. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Trick fuckery has definitely been known for these uh, scenarios. Okay, so now the bear has, has ID'd me and is coming towards me. Coming to you. You're just kind of walking your way. And my you only know. two choices are st to stand still or to make a run for it. That's right. <sighs> Go with your gut. At this, point, at this point, I'm making a run for it. <laughs> um, standing still would be a, a better option, <laughs> but maybe so you're gaming. Remember when I said when I said how many people have failed this? Uh, this maybe you're gaming it too much. I don't know. We'll see. Let's see what we'll see what it says here. Since you're unarmed, uh, it is recommended just to stand as still as possible in this situation. The bear could be doing a false charge or just testing to see if you are a potential predator, uh, and could lose interest as quickly as they had interest in you right so but the big key is here i think the big takeaway and once again it's up for discussion is turning your back turning your back on any predator is usually where it's always a big a big no-no mountain lions bears that eye contact sometimes in keeping your eyes on them and they know that your eyes are on them especially with like with wolves wolves will take that opportunity as soon as oh, you yeah, look yeah. left They'll or right real, real to jump your shit right same with some of those big cats. So keeping them knowing that you see them plays to your advantage. And standing still shows that you're not scared. And a lot of predatorial animals are driven on that fear. And as soon as you start the chase, then the chase is going to happen. Yes. Um, and we know we can't outrun. That, that, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, you're good. Um, so never turn your back and uh, you know maintain your ground as crazy as that sounds, right? Um, but... Uh, unfortunately, again, the bear is now picking up speed and appears to be charging you. All right, so as she closes in, do you A, throw a rock at it, or B, lie down and play dead? <laughs> Once again, these are anchored to things that you see out there on how to deal with bears. And so some of it's kind yeah. of... I, I, honestly, at that point, I think you have to just promote a protective posture and throw the rock at the bear. <laughs> Are you sure of that answer? No. <laughs> All right, we're going to no, go I'm with it. So, in this anchors back to Leo DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, he, uh, yeah, he he played dead, and uh, the. And the bear basically just tossed his shit, right? Yeah, uh, but he ended up. First. Yeah, he ended up surviving, and um, yeah, at first, right? Exactly. Um, so laying down, playing dead for this scenario is uh, is the correct answer. <laughs> How is laying down, playing dead the correct answer if you're going to get tossed around like a rag doll? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the, the laying flat. It really, it's more of a protective deal, right? So laying flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to get down. If you're going to do yeah, it, you're going to protect your face. Yeah, protect so, the back of your neck. But right. wouldn't you also want to be like, hey, I'm not someone you want to F with and just hit it with a rock upside the head and hope that that turns them off? <laughs> yeah, that's. I, I would say that there is no right or wrong here, you know, because at that point you're in survival mode. You have, I think the key is, is going with, what is the best decision based on other people's experiences? And so, yeah. you know, over time with these bears playing dead has worked for a lot of people. It sounds crazy, but it has. And But you had the one guy, the one guy that there is actually, I think, a monument dedicated to in Montana. He 
he basically fought and won a fight barehanded with a brown bear, a grizzly, right? And the, he got lucky because in the middle of this fight, before he could have his head, face, whatever, yeah. knocked clean off, he had the opportunity to stick his fist down the throat of this bear. He put his whole arm in there, and it, maybe it was by accident. Maybe he was throwing yeah. a punch, whatever it was, and the bear choked to death on his arm. It is the one confirmed kill bear hand you know so no weapons uh killing a bear uh and the bear choked on his arm so i, I was like well that's kind of a I'll, I'll throw that so once again even though it only happened once you got to at least throw it in your 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 tool bag just in case right if you I'm have just that trying to imagine the scenario where this, where this bear <laughs> yeah. is, is choking to death while the guy still has his arm right in down the bear's esophagus right it's choking it can't breathe because his arm filled up the entire airway and somehow the guy survived to tell the story and uh and i think in mon i think it's in montana they have an actual I, I need to look I need yeah to look at story. yeah and it, it's not like it's recent history i think this goes back some time yeah, yeah. so who knows every bear every bear fight i ever think of i ever think of the revenant or like the end yeah. of like uh what was the brad pitt movie um uh, uh, where he fights, he's like the World War Two veteran, World War One veteran, but he like fights the Legends of the Fall. Thank you, Legends of the Le Fall. And he right. like, and he, it was a good death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a death I would want to go for. That's for sure. No, yeah, no. Um, so going back to kind of the playing dead thing, I think people say it, people have done it, and it's worked. Um, but what's really happening here is you're, you're, when you lay down, you're, you're covering your vital organs, you know, mm -hmm. and you're kind of getting in this, you know, laying on your stomach, hands behind your neck and your head, right? So that it can't yeah. clamp on. Um, it's almost the same exact posture you would take if a grenade is thrown at you, right? You're going to... That's exactly what I said. You want to yeah. do the... You're going to put yeah. your hands behind your head. You're going to put your organs closest to the earth. You're going to cross your legs so they can't get in in, in between. Um, mm -hmm. They can't grab you by the back of your neck, and you're just going to go for the ride. Um, whereas throwing a rock, you and I both know it's no reason why you didn't pull the trigger on that 9 millimeter. It's not going to do a fucking thing to a, right, right, right. To a bear. Yeah. But fire it up even more. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, so next, uh, as you go and lay flat and play dead, you slip <laughs> and you tumble down a steep, this rocky. This is going as well for me as this. Uh, as this. As so you slip and fall down this rocky incline, right? Mm -hmm. um, you tumble about forty-five, fifty feet. I mean, that's that's you Jeez, know that's everybody knows that. One story is 10 feet, so perspective here. And you splash into a river. Good thing there was a river down there. Yeah. Um, the bear chooses not to follow you down down the, uh, down the incline. Uh, so you end up in the middle of rapids now. What the hell? You know, you're having just a bad day. Um, so do you, A, just dive into the water and swim for land, right? Or... Locate a big stick that you've uh, that you've got within arm's reach, mm -hmm. right, and uh, use it to try and maybe one get up on your feet and then cross the river using the stick as a third leg. Yeah, definitely going to use the stick to get yes, up. Yes, correct. There we go. Back on the hey. winning streak. Um, Even a broken clock. 
<laughs> you never want to dive into anything when it comes to water. No. Right. No. <laughs> uh, that's how little kids, you know, that's how you break your neck in a shallow pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and the long stick acts as a third leg, and you basically want to cross perpendicular uh, right. to the flow of the water, yeah, um, facing into to it. Right. Sure, you're floating. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, with all that adrenaline, um, you don't feel a thing. By the way, right? Uh, but no, now you I realize. Just fell fifty feet down a cliff. I'm definitely injured. <laughs> That's right. So now all of a sudden you realize. Wait a minute. I think I fractured my leg. So. Do you, A, move quickly to find your way out of the woods and get help, um, or B, start addressing the wound? I'm assuming, yeah, you're going to try to render as much immediate first aid to yourself yeah. as you can before you start moving. Right. You want to kind of basically... Moving's in- going to make that worse, so you're going to try to stabilize the best you can to keep your movement yes. functional. Yes, stabilize. That is exactly right. That is the key word. So good job. So by moving quickly on a damaged leg, you're just going to make things worse, and you're not going to actually get to your end point in a successful manner, that's for sure. Right. Um, that fracture becomes compound very quickly. Yeah. So we'll say for this scenario, you had some 550 cord or your shoelaces, and uh, you were able to kind of get a splint, you know, uh well, what on. I'm going to do, what I'm going to do, Clint, is I'm going to use that stick that I found as the splint. There and you then go. I'm going to use my shirt to to stabilize the wound or to right. stabilize the brace. There you go. Exactly. You got to be creative out there. And so, whether it's sticks, um, you know, or even some of the gear you have on you, uh, they're all they're all tools. You just have to be creative enough in the moment to think about it that way. And most of the time in survival mode, people get very creative because they have no other option. They come up with yeah, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Right. That is without a doubt. Um, and, and, and somehow in the, uh, in, in the, uh, in the, in all of this, right. Get You know, you just, you know, fell down a ravine, uh, the bear chase and everything else. You've, uh, you still got your map. Okay. So, you now consult the map that you brought with you. And according to the map, you can make your way back up the incline to find your way back home. Uh, but it'll be uh, roughly a quarter mile back to safety. Or you can take the long way around, which is all flat ground. Uh, and you're going to be a little further, obviously. If you mm-hmm. So do you a... Go up the incline uh, so that you can go only a quarter mile, or do you just take the flat route, which is a little bit longer? Yeah, if I'm injured, I'm taking the flat route. That's yeah. a little bit longer, but it ensures my the certainty of my safety. No doubt about it. Um, and this is all about in- energy conservation, really. You know, right. When you're yeah, when yeah. you're injured, you also don't want to get halfway up and fall back down again. <laughs> that's right. You're yeah. If you if you're talking forty five fifty feet, five stories incline, yeah. obviously steep enough to where it and injured. Away. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to go. Well, let me just go right back up that. Right. And you back. you and I both know like how much your legs play a role in mountain climbing. Oh no, now no doubt about it. And you, heck, just your feet alone. Yeah. Are the most important thing you have in these situations. Um, so as you proceed your flat route, you get close enough to the edge of the woods. Um, you get some cell service. Okay. So you're on the home stretch now. Do you a use the phone GPS to make sure that you're going the right direction or B make that call for help, alert someone and get some medical assistance headed your way. Yeah. Immediately make the call for help. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, good job. Um, making the call, 
is the answer without a doubt. Uh, especially you've got a, you've got a broken leg and when you don't really know the status, you may have stabilized it. You may have wrapped a stick and some handkerchiefs around it. But the reality is, is you could pass out at any given moment. So the, any opportunity that you have while you're still conscious to make a call, you should. And, uh, and then make sure that, uh, when you do that, um, take in your environment, right? Look for those big, big land features that you can dial people in, start macro with mountaintops Mm -hmm. and then micro to maybe a shed. So it'd be like, I'm in between two mountains and I'm roughly a hundred yards away from an old barn. And now you've, you can walk them in. It's no like JTAC, right? You're calling in for fire. It's the same kind of philosophy. You you start big and work your way in small because pilots definitely operate that way. Um, and even and even for the people who may not be like so uh, terrain association conversant, yeah, knowing how to just simply share your location on your device yeah. can be an immediate life saving scenario. Because let's say you pass out in the middle of the phone call, immediately just sharing that location via text or you know multiple text mm-hmm. messages. Because text messages will often go through when cell phone, like when voice connections won't have the ability to get through. Yeah. So anytime you can double down on additional efforts you know it's that whole like you know twice as once once is nothing the more you can but you know use that technology to your advantage at that point so that you don't necessarily have to have the wherewithal to communicate your exact location the technology can do it for you yeah i agree and they've made it really easy these days to either share your location Mm -hmm. um there's an app i really like and it's ingenious it's called three words Three words. Um, everyone, go check it out. There's no sponsorship or anything here. They uh, they're just now starting to become popular with EMS services because we're Latin long and eight digit grid and all of these other ways of giving your location is very confusing globally, right? That that's mm-hmm. that takes time to understand Latin long and or even to find the feature somewhere on your phone. Um, but three words, literally what they've done is broken the globe into 10 by 10 foot squares, the entire globe. And each 10 by 10 square has three words associated with it. And those three words do not repeat themselves uh, with the next little square next to you. So now you can literally text or say those three words and then they know exactly what 10 foot by 10 foot box you are sitting in. Oh, that's Is that not cool? So yeah. you can pull it up on your phone right now and you'll have, depending on the size of your home, you'll have obviously dozens of 10 foot by 10 foot squares in each one of those squares has three random words associated with it. And then you just say those three words, the receiving end can type those three words in and it'll tell them exactly where you're at. It's a pretty cool app. That's it's, really cool. Yeah. And it's, yeah, and uh, you, know what, you know what's also great about that, Clint, is that one of the problems that so many first responders are having with people using cell phones to yes. call 911 is that it's not, it's it's giving it's the tower's accurate. location, not your physical location. Right. Or, or you if you're in an you, urban environment and you right. know, you're not, you, you could be two blocks away, you know, that they yeah. think you're at. Yeah. But yeah, three it's, it's not like the old, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. That's really great. So I tell that. people all the time, use three words and then, you know, you got three words for home, three words for work, you know, know them, write them down, whatever. Yeah. 
Um, you can put them in your notes on your phone. Um, and, that, and, and that's global. It is becoming very global. Yeah, I, so I that's think, that's great for like the business traveler. That's yeah. great for you know students away at college. That's great for family vacations. That that's great for family reunification plans. I mean, that's exactly. fantastic. Yeah, and it's kind of really, what I like is idea. it's kind of code like, right? I love stuff like that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very my, my, guy. Yeah, I'm gonna just write down my three words, and you're gonna know exactly where yeah. I'm at or, or where you're at. I mean, how how great is that that you can just have your own little code phrase like when you're at a party with your significant other, like, "Hey, you ready to go?" Uh, you know, uh, any whiskey escort. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It, so anyway, it's, uh, I throw that tidbit out there. It's super cool. Okay. Back to the scenario. Um, yes. so yeah, you, you make a call for help. You get out there. So, um, now you make it out of the woods. All right. So last question, do you a get your gun and go back into the woods uh, for some little, uh, bear hunting or B get to the hospital and get your leg fixed. Uh, well, clearly, you, you, revenge is is the ultimate motive, Clinton. You yeah, definitely exactly. the bear cannot. You know, he's going to tell other bears what a what a what a target you are. No, you go to the hospital. You heal up. You you get yeah. yourself the care you need to survive. Well, good job, Spencer. You did uh, I did you, I did I survive? You passed by passed. by right. very small margins, that's, but that's okay. Listen, man. Keeping most of your blood in your body allows you yeah. to live, and that's all that matters. <laughs> by an inch, by an inch or a mile, make sure you go home. That's right. You did good. All right. Well, hey, uh, so, you know, to wrap it up, where can people find you, buy your book, all of that contact information? Go ahead and throw it out for us. Yeah, thanks, man. So uh, the book is at uh, www. Do people still say still say www.thesafetytrap.com? There you go. Thesafetytrap.com. Uh, all the links for all the places you can buy the book are prominently featured at the top of the page. You can read about me. You can read about um, I, I host the podcast there, Corson's Corner goes up on that website as well. Um, also, Corson Security Group, which is the business. Otherwise, uh, I'm on the social medias, uh, Instagram at s.corson, Twitter, Spencer Corson, LinkedIn, Spencer Corson. Um, really appreciate everyone's help. I appreciate your help, your all of your support in helping to make the safety trap a, a bestseller success, even if that doesn't directly correlate to uh, commas in my bank account. Um <laughs> But uh, no, man, this is, it's been a, it's been a great ride. It's been a true thrill to just get out there and meet everyone and do the book signings and give the speeches. And, you know, I'm out here just like you, just trying to help good people make bad things better, man. Yeah, no. And I appreciate you taking the time out, coming on the show. Um, and, uh, you know, thanks for everything you do out there. Thanks for your service. And thank uh, you for yours. And for those of you listening, remember, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. And until next time, stay safe out there. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson.